0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning for today's episode. This week's episode references a lot of murders and crimes against the person. Like, a lot. If that would bring you down, this might be an ideal time to go back in the vault for a second listening to an old favorite episode. On November 27, 1978, Dan White, a former San Francisco city supervisor who'd recently resigned his position, entered San Francisco's city hall by climbing through a basement window and shot and killed Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. At his trial, White's attorneys claimed that White had diminished mental capacity from eating excessive sugary junk food. Their strategy would become known in the law and pop culture as the Twinkie defense. That's one of many brilliantly bizarre legal strategies people have tried and sometimes even succeeded with. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as
1: China. I'm Jane Perles, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
0: Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship.
1: Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The phrase Twinkie Defense came to represent the efforts of criminals to avoid responsibilities for their actions by claiming some external force had caused them to act the way they had. The most important thing to know about the Twinkie defense is, that's not how it happened. Yep, we're only one minute in and we're already busting myths. Or, as I like to say, disabusing misbeliefs. I don't think Twinkies were ever mentioned in the testimony, said Chief Defense Attorney Douglas Schmidt, who recalled ho-hos and ding-dongs were, but not Twinkies. In fact, the cream-filled, seemingly nuclear war-resistant confections were only mentioned in passing. Junk food was an insignificant part of the defense, a quick mention by one of five defense therapists, specifically psychiatrist Martin Blinder. The main focus of the defense's case in May of 1979 was the diminished capacity, that White had suffered from periodic bouts of depression, amounting to, quote, a major mental illness. According to co-counsel Stephen Scher, the machinations of dirty politics at City Hall drove him round the bend. During his day on the stand, Dr. Blinder, a former mayor of San Anselmo, California, and one-time teacher at UCFS's medical school, characterized White as his family's black sheep a man with rigid values and pent-up emotions. In his day-long accounting on the stand of how White's life unraveled, one small aspect of one thing that Blinder said was turned into the irrational explanation for everything that happened. Studies show, he said more recently in an interview, that if you have a general predisposition to bipolar mood swings, things you ingest can play a part. In the days leading up to the killings, the psychiatrist told the jury, White cast aside his normal habits and grew increasingly slovenly, quit working, shunned his wife, gave up personal hygiene, and rather than eating his normally healthful diet, indulged in Twinkies and Coke. All symptoms, Binder testified, of depression. The junk food, he said, only made White more depressed, which caused him to binge on it even more. Even without depression, I understand that cycle. Today, a still angry Blinder says, It's preposterous to think that 12 middle-class homeowner jurors would give a killer even a partial pass on the basis of what he ate the night before. White was convicted of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to nine years in prison, of which he only served a little over five. Blinder rightly blames the press for perpetuating the myth. If I found a cure for cancer, they'd still say I was the guy who invented the Twinkie defense. This wasn't the only time that unhealthy food found itself in the spotlight. In 1984, a San Diego man named James Huberty called a mental health clinic to request an appointment. When they didn't call him back the same day, he told his wife, Society had its chance. And the next day told her he was, Going hunting. Hunting humans. Armed with a pistol, shotgun, Uzi, and hundreds of rounds of ammo for each, he entered a busy McDonald's and immediately began shooting, killing 21 people and injuring 19 others before being shot by police. When the metaphoric smoke cleared, Huberty's widow sued McDonald's and Babcock and Wilcox, her husband's longtime employer, in an Ohio state court for $5 million. The suit claimed that the massacre was triggered by both a poor diet and her husband working around highly poisonous metals. Further, citing that monosodium glutamate in McDonald's food, combined with high levels of lead and cadmium discovered in Huberty's body at his autopsy, built up from fumes he inhaled during his 14 years as a welder, had induced delusions and uncontrollable rage. Her suit was unsuccessful thus shutting down the posthumous MSG defense. And no, Grandma, Chinese food doesn't give you a headache because it has MSG in it. MSG is a natural substance found in savory foods like mushrooms and Parmesan cheese, and those never bothered you. Also, that claim was popularized by two unscientific racists, so there's that. She's not even alive anymore, and I'm still annoyed that she thought that. Back on topic, though. Then there was the case of Kenneth Sands, who in 2011 claimed that caffeine caused him to molest five women and girls in one outing. He attempted to argue in court that caffeine caused a psychotic episode, explaining, My son-in-law and daughter have never seen that kind of behavior from myself. That kind of behavior took place after a high school volleyball game, where he groped multiple people and even got onto the player's bus and groped one more person before being kicked off. The court ruled that the caffeine was not, in fact, the reason behind Sands' aggressive and lewd behavior and found him guilty on five counts of fourth-degree assault. A life of poor eating was one man's defense against a murder charge. He claimed he was too fat to be the killer. The lawyer for a Florida man, and don't our ears perk up when we hear that phrase, who stood five eight or 172 centimeters, and weighed 285 pounds, or 130 kilos, claimed his client was in such bad physical shape, he couldn't have pulled off the shooting or the fast getaway, which included running upstairs. The lawyer said his client's weight had led to asthma, sleep apnea, and other obesity-related ailments. You look at him, and you don't need to hear it from a doctor, the lawyer said. Thanks, I guess? The jury convicted the man of murder and weapons charges. The name of the man supposedly too fat to have done it? Edward Eights. On the subject of bodily girth as a defense, a Japanese bikini model turned actress was acquitted of trespass charges when a courtroom recreation of the crime showed that she couldn't possibly have fit through a hole in a door because of her ample bust. Serena Kozakura had been sentenced to 14 months in prison for willful destruction of property for allegedly kicking a hole in the door and re-entering her boyfriend's apartment following an argument with another woman she'd found there. During the appeal hearing before the Tokyo High Court, The boyfriend and another witness testified that Kazakura kicked a hole in the door and squeezed through to re enter the apartment. But the hole in the door measured 28 by 8 inches or 72 by 22 centimeters. Ms. Kazakura's famous bust measured 40 inches or 101 centimeters. The judge agreed she would not have fit through the hole as her ex described. It's not to say that the things that are supposed to be good for you escape the judicial reticle either. Cough syrup and cold medicine have been the would be fall guys for a number of cases. An aspiring pastor in North Carolina claimed that he woke up to find his wife covered in blood on the floor and couldn't remember what happened the night before. Although he believed that he had attacked his wife, he claimed that the cough syrup he had taken to help him sleep caused him to black out. At some point though he backed off that strategy and pled guilty. In twenty eleven, the a doctor was accused of murdering his partner and their young son. His defense? Cough syrup-induced psychosis. His attorneys argue that at the time of the murders, the defendant was suffering from mental health issues such as depression and paranoia, which were exacerbated by his use of over-the-counter cough medicine. His must also not have looked like a great case, because he also pled guilty. That same year, one James McVeigh broke into the house of Maybel Shine and stabbed her to death. He pled guilty but mentally ill to murder charges. At his sentencing, the defense said that the night before the murder, McVeigh had mixed alcohol and cough syrup, which caused him to suffer hallucinations. In addition, the defense claimed that he suffered from mental illness as well as alcohol and drug abuse. The jury wasn't convinced and imposed the death penalty. Similarly, Nebraska man Shane Tilley stabbed a friend to death while, he claims, high on cough medicine. This became less of a focus during the trial when a doctor testified that Tilly suffered from a schizoaffective disorder. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a treatment facility. Per the most recent news coverage I could find of him from 2017, he is still in that facility, though he did escape once for a couple of hours. Even with as desperate and self-serving as these defense attempts have been, there may be a kernel of validity worth investigating in them. Many cough medicines contain the ingredient dextromethorphan. When taken in high doses, this can cause mania and hallucinations, and result in assault, homicide, or suicide, says one study. If you hear of any legal precedent being set vis-à-vis cough syrup, do let me know. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Your Brain on Facts, Twitter at Brain on facts Pod. You can go to YourBrainOnFacts.com and hit the contact form at the bottom of the page. And you can always leave me a voicemail at 804-404-2669. In fact, feel free to leave me a voicemail with any cool facts you've found or questions that have always been nagging you, and I'll include them in the show. Physical health and mental health have a cyclical causative relationship, so it's no great surprise that people have tried to use their physical condition to explain or excuse their actions. Nearly as buzzy in the headline lexography as Twinkie defense is the PMS defense. It first appeared in England in 1980, when a woman ran over her ex with her car and only lost her license for a year. And the following day, another woman was placed on probation for carrying a knife and threatening to kill a policeman, even though she was already on probation, for stabbing a woman to death. The most notorious case in the U.S. that put the PMS defense on the map, as it were, came in 1982, when Shirley Santos tried to have a felony child abuse charge dismissed. Like half of our cough syrup cases, she reversed position and pled guilty. Elizabeth Holtzman, the Brooklyn District Attorney, said, The withdrawal of this defense is a signal that PMS is a defense without merit. That didn't stop Jamie Lynn Irving from trying it in 1983 after she stabbed her roommate, or Margaret Pitt in 1985 when she intentionally, repeatedly crashed into another car. Emphasis on trying. In Pitt's case, she was actually convicted by an all-female jury. The PMS defense didn't go out with hair metal and day-glow neon mesh belly shirts for guys. A woman in my home state of Virginia, that only seems to generate good news at a rate of three stories out of a hundred, convinced a judge she was not guilty of drunken driving after arguing that it was premenstrual syndrome, not drunkenness, that had caused her erratic behavior. The state trooper that pulled over Geraldine Richter reported a strong smell of alcohol, and when he asked her how much she'd had to drink, she told him it was none of his damn business. After failing the field sobriety test, Dr. Richter, did I mention that, kicked the trooper in the groin and had to be restrained. At the police station, she kicked the breathalyzer table hard enough to warrant being put in leg restraints, too. Twenty minutes later, she blew a 0.13 blood alcohol level, Dr. Richter's defense team claimed that her violent reaction stemmed from the trooper threatening to arrest her and take her three children, who were in the car. Still, expert testimony on how severe PMS can be, and how it can even affect alcohol absorption, Richter claimed to have had four glasses of wine over six hours that day, was enough to sway the judge. Assistant Commonwealth's attorney Grace Burke Call the PMS defense ridiculous. It's a typical case of drunk driving. This defense hurts the credibility of women. I can't tell you how ridiculous I think this defense is. She used PMS to explain away her outlandish conduct toward the officer at the scene. The men of the world, I'm sure, are just shaking their heads at this one. I can't say I disagree with her. While severe hormone changes can affect a person see also postpartum depression and psychosis, you can't help but feel that the next step from the PMS defense is being called an irrational, hysterical woman. Interestingly, the PMS defense has also been used in India, a nation whose people have a rather prickly issue with misogyny, where two-thirds of women have been the victim of domestic violence. On a totally justifiable tangent, when you can, Google Abused Goddesses. It's a photo series portraying Hindu goddesses as victims of abuse for the Save Our Sisters campaign. Back to the case. A 21-year-old woman was accused of pushing three children into a well, one of whom could not be rescued. The trial court convicted her of murder and attempted murder under Indian penal law. The case was then appealed before the Rajasthan High Court, where the lawyer for the accused argued that at the time of the incident, she was suffering from premenstrual stress syndrome, the way they phrase what we call PMS. This, it was argued, led to her becoming aggressive during certain periods of the month. Under Section 84 of Indian Penal Law, no action taken by a person who is of unsound mind and incapable of knowing what he or she is doing can be considered a crime. Her lawyer also brought up past incidents of violent behavior and madness to demonstrate that she was the victim of moments of mental unsoundness, laboring under a defect of reason triggered by premenstrual stress syndrome. A two-judge panel overturned her guilty verdict.
1: I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of
0: Oddities. The Webby award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Your menstrual cycle comes once a month, but sleepwalking could happen every night. Yes, sleepwalking, or to give it its proper name, somnambulism. Are you kidding, Moxie? You may scoff. People really claim they were sleepwalking, and it works? Scoff all you want, but kinda, yeah. If your only exposure to sleepwalking is through cartoons or movies, you might not believe how high-functioning a sleepwalker can be. They can even carry on conversations. Sleepwalking falls under the heading of parasomnia, a category of sleep disorders that involve abnormal movement, behavior, emotion, perception, and or dreams that can occur at any stage of sleep. Just as I was surprised about the PMS defense working in India, I didn't expect to find cases of sleepwalking as a legal defense as far back as 1846. You would think they'd just label the person a murderer or... Possessed, with no middle ground. But no, people were even more likely to believe it back then. In 1846, Albert Terrell was acquitted in the murder of a prostitute in Boston. Her throat was slit, nearly to the point of decapitation, and he set fire to the brothel. His lawyer stated that Terrell was a chronic sleepwalker and might have committed the crimes while asleep. The jury agreed and found him not guilty though many contemporaries didn't buy the defense's version of events. The fact that Terrell fled to New Orleans after the murder, which was no mean feat in those days, does raise an eyebrow. A few decades later, a man fell asleep in the lobby of a Kentucky hotel. When a porter shook him to rouse him, the man drew a gun and shot the porter three times. He reportedly left the room and told a witness that he'd shot someone. He was found guilty of manslaughter, but the conviction was reversed on appeal because evidence that he had a lifelong history of sleepwalking and had been sleep-deprived before the attack was excluded from the first trial. The conviction of a Texas man in the 1920s was similarly reversed. He thought he had heard a noise in the night and began firing the gun that he had under his pillow, killing his girlfriend. The jury hadn't been informed of the possibility that he could have been asleep, and had fired the shots without independent volition while in his somnambulistic state. Kenneth Parks of Canada was acquitted of the 1987 murder of his mother-in-law after using the sleepwalking defense. What's most bizarre about this case is that he drove 14 miles to his in-law's house to do it, even though by all accounts they had a good relationship. Parks strangled his father in law unconscious and bludgeoned his mother in law with a tire iron before stabbing both with a kitchen knife. The woman died, the man barely survived. Parks then arrived at a police station, confused about what had happened in the preceding hour, and seemingly oblivious to the fact that he'd severed tendons in both of his hands during the attack. That obliviousness to pain, along with other factors, including a strong family history of parasomnia, led experts to testify that Parks had been sleepwalking during the attack. In 1994, Pennsylvania man Michael Rixgers was convicted of the murder of his wife. He claimed he'd accidentally killed her during a sleepwalking episode, which defense lawyers argued was provoked by a medical condition, specifically sleep apnea. Prosecutors presented an alternative explanation, that Rixker was upset that his wife was planning to leave him. Rixker was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 1997, devout Mormon Scott Falader stabbed his wife 44 times with a hunting knife before drowning her in the backyard pool. Fallader, who had no apparent motive, tried to mount a sleepwalking defense, saying he had a history of sleepwalking, was sleep-deprived, and was unconscious at the time of the attack. But he'd also tried to conceal evidence by stuffing his bloody clothes and the knife in a box in his car. A jury found Fallader guilty of first degree murder. Stephen Wrights of California killed his married lover, Eva, during what was supposed to be a romantic Catalina Island getaway in 2001. He smashed her head with a flower pot, dislocated her arm, broke multiple bones, and stabbed her. Wrights told police he had no recollection of the attack though through flashbacks, he recalled believing he was in a scuffle with a male intruder, an excuse that was also used in a few of the other cases. His parents testified that he had been a sleepwalker since childhood. The jury didn't buy it, though, convicting rights of first-degree murder, presumably influenced by the defendant's history of violence toward the victim. So for those of you keeping score at home, out of seven cases using parasomnia as legal mitigation... We have two not guilty, two conviction reversals, and three convictions. All this death and murder can be a real downer. Do you know what would make you feel better? Bonus content. I upload two bonus mini-episodes every month on the 10th and 25th to patreon.com yourbrainonfacts. Becoming a member of our Patreon is a great way to support the show, because it helps to defray the very real costs that go into producing it. Not even including silly things like the jaunt I just took to Florida to attend PodFest Multimedia Expo. Though thankfully, most of that was covered by a contest that I won for my airfare and my admission. Yay! But the single best way to support Your Brain on Facts, or any podcast you enjoy, is to share it. Almost every podcast app allows you to share on your social media right from your listening screen. While we're using pleasant Latin words, let's look at automatism. The automatism defense is a claim that physiological or environmental factors cause the defendant to commit criminal acts involuntarily, thus without criminal intent. It relies specifically on automatism of Penfield, a rare type of epilepsy, named for the neurosurgeon who first diagnosed it, which supposedly leaves people unable to control their actions due to stimulation in the amygdala of their brain. While all of the cases on today's show were tragic, this one involved a police officer and an unarmed youth, so I don't begrudge you if you want to skip 30. On Thanksgiving Day 1976, responding to a report of a man with a gun in the Cypress Hills housing projects, Officer Robert Torsney encountered a group of young men. After a brief conversation, Torsney leveled his gun at 15-year-old Randolph Evans and shot him point-blank in the head. Torsney made no effort to check on the boy's condition, and instead walked back to his patrol car, got in, removed the spent cartridge from his weapon, and replaced it with another bullet. Torsney's partner, who was already in the vehicle when Torsney shot Evans, asked, "What did you do?" Torsney responded, "I don't know, Maddie. What did I do?" Rather than claiming that the victim had a gun, Torsney's defense attorney used it as proof that Torsney must be sick, implying he wouldn't have fired otherwise. One year to the day after Evans's funeral, Torsney was found not guilty by reason of insanity and remanded to Creedmoor Psychiatric Center in Queens, where he would be for one year. This was the only case of a legal use of automatism of Penfield that I could find. Let's get out of shades of current events and into some pop culture. The first Matrix movie is a cultural institutions, the sequels not so much, influencing not only future movies but even legal precedent, not once, but several times. Ohio resident Tonda Lynn Ansley was found not guilty by reason of insanity in 2002 after claiming that she thought her landlady, a college professor, was part of a conspiracy to brainwash and kill her, motivating Ansley to shoot her landlady several times in the head. Upon questioning, Ansley told detectives she believed that the world they were in was not real that she was living in a computer simulation like the Matrix. They commit a lot of crimes in the Matrix, Ansley allegedly told police. That's where you go to sleep at night and they drug you and take you somewhere else. Then they bring you back and put you in bed and when you wake up, you think that it's a bad dream. In this alternate reality, she said her landlady had been involved in a conspiracy to keep her brainwashed and under control of the simulation with the ultimate goal of killing her. In Ansley's mind, this was all simple self-defense against the sinister agents conspiring to keep her in the virtual dream world. In 2000, 27-year-old computer science student Vadim Meisages brutally murdered and dismembered fellow student and roommate Ella Wong, before unceremoniously scattering her body parts around the area. When Meisages was found by police, he was wandering around a mall with a knife, high on drugs, and acting bizarrely. Upon his arrest, he spouted nonsense gibberish for a while before telling authorities that he was living in the Matrix, and that therefore Wong had never been a real person at all. Eventually, a judge would declare him mentally incompetent to stand trial, and he was institutionalized. Though he didn't use it in his defense, teenage DC sniper Lee Boyd Malvo reportedly wrote the words «Free yourself of the Matrix» in sketches that were seized from his cell, and told authorities during questioning that if they watched the movies, they'd understand him. In February 2003, Joshua Cook, 19 of... Sai, Virginia, murdered his parents with nine gunshot blasts between them, then called police and calmly explained to them what he had done. He then stood outside the home, drinking a soda, waiting unarmed... To be taken into custody without a struggle where he was compliant and well-behaved by all accounts cook had been absolutely obsessed with the matrix series dressing in trench coats covering his walls with posters and watching the movies over and over again this obsession morphed into him thinking he actually lived in the matrix according to one of his defense attorneys Defendant Cook harbored a bona fide belief that he was living in the virtual reality of the Matrix at the time of the alleged offenses, and thus could not distinguish right from wrong. But the prosecution pointed out that Cook had called police to turn himself in, and told the 911 operator he was definitely going to get the death penalty for this, implying that he knew exactly what he was doing and was aware of the consequences. If he really thought his parents were bits of dripping green code, he wouldn't have bothered. Bonus fact, the scrolling computer code you see in the Matrix movies are recipes from a sushi cookbook. Ultimately, Joshua Cook entered a plea deal and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today, though I do want to leave you with one legal defense that backfired in the most extreme way. In 1871, A man was on trial for a death that occurred during a barroom brawl. His lawyer set out to prove that his client was innocent because he believed the victim had shot himself after trying to draw his pistol from a kneeling position. In an attempt to prove his case, the lawyer put what he thought was an unloaded gun in his pocket, kneeled down to recreate the scene, attempted to pull the pistol out of his pocket, and accidentally shot himself. He died a few days later, but his client was acquitted and released from custody. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.